First Corinthians chapter 10. We are starting at verse 1. It says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized under Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were for our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters or idol worshippers, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for examples or for examples and they are written for our admonition. Everybody say our admonition. Upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Amen. This is our third and will be our final lesson in this series on lessons from the wilderness. And... uh, Our platform for this series has been that Paul, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, wrote to the church at Corinth, a church that he was directly connected with starting, and he taught them that the experiences of the children of Israel in the wilderness had lessons or examples for them, even though they were not naturally connected to Israel. As a part of the same New Testament church as Corinth, these examples are also for us today, to be challenged and to be warned by. That's what that word admonition means. And there are several events that Paul refers to in our text, and we've looked at some of them each week as we've gone through this series. And just to, some of you were here, not here perhaps, just to try to summarize a little bit what we've covered. We be- began by considering the dissatisfaction that Israel demonstrated toward God and how their carnal desires, that word carnal means their natural sinful desires, for the pleasures of Egypt led to many of them dying in the wilderness and their souls wasting away. We spent some time understanding why idolatry is so offensive to God and how that as his image creature to choose to reflect something other than God is to corrupt our commitment and our relationship with him. We were reminded of the devastation of immorality and fornication and how it often occurs in the midst or hand in hand with idolatry. When we add something, we covered this last week, when we add something or someone to our relationship with God that should not be there, it opens a door, it opens an access point for immoral behavior. Often when a believer allows fornication into their life, it is a result of something else that was introduced first. It could be a person could be a lack of surrender to the Lord, could be a rejection of godly counsel. But it is unlikely that a believer who is walking with God simply yields to temptation and participates in immoral behavior. There is usually something else that has been compromised first. We need to beware of that. We spoke last week of the importance of being in the house of the Lord, gathered together with the people of God, 
why it matters that we worship together, that we pray together, that we hear the Word of God together. The times that we come into this place together should not be the only times that we focus on the Word of God, however. We need to read it. We need to meditate upon it. We need to learn to study it for ourselves. It's not like the books you had at high school. You cannot just pick it up and start at the beginning and work your way through to the end. We have to learn to understand how the Word of God is put together and to be able to grow as part of our relationship with God. I want to take a moment while we're talking about teaching the Word to acknowledge those of you that are teaching Bible studies during the week. Teaching Bible studies is a wonderful thing to do. It's a wonderful ministry. It is important. Some of you are doing them one-on-one. Some, it might be a couple of people together. Some are even doing them online, and that's fantastic. That really is fantastic. While these Bible studies are great, and God will definitely use them, please don't allow yourselves to think that they're a substitute for being in the house of God or an excuse for not being here. We cannot allow ourselves to think, well, I missed prayer meeting tonight, but that's okay, we have Bible study instead. Or I'm too tired to go to church tonight, but we have Bible study on Monday night or Tuesday night or Thursday night, whatever it might be. So that's no problem. A home Bible study is fantastic. If you're in a Bible study, that's wonderful. But it is not a substitute for being in the house of God together. We need to understand that. Amen. So after considering the warnings is really what they are from our previous two lessons, we move on this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 9 where it says, Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. It's a very specific description, and it leads us to a very specific reference or example in the Old Testament, which is found in the book of Numbers, in chapter 21, and starting to read at verse 4. Speaking of the nation of Israel, it says, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, or to go around the land of Eden. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, which was not completely true, neither is there any water, and our soul loathes or is despising and rejecting this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, And they bit the people, and much of people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, put it on a pole, and when it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Unusual story, and hopefully by the time we're done, we'll get down to what that's all about. But to paraphrase this text, the Bible tells us that the people had become discouraged from the challenges of the journey that they faced. And in their discouragement, they began to speak against God and against Moses with complaints that, if you know much of Israel's history, particularly in this period, these complaints were not new. They they were on repeat. They had that playlist going over and over again. They said, why have you brought us into this wilderness to die? They said, there's no bread or water here. 
And they said, we are sick of this light bread, which was the manna that God was miraculously providing for them to survive every single day. And it's quite apparent when you read the, the text that God was very unimpressed with their complaining. And he sent fiery serpents or snakes among the people. It seems that they were called fiery serpents possibly because partly of their appearance. The snakes may have had some red color in their appearance, but also because of the burning pain that their bites caused. And the scripture says that many people died. Many people died. And then as the people began to repent, they recognized their sin. I imagine being bitten by a snake would accelerate that process. But as the people began to repent, they asked Moses to pray for them, which he did. The same Moses that they'd been speaking against. Following the instruction from the Lord, Moses made a snake out of brass and put it up on a pole. And whoever looked to that brazen or that brass serpent recovered from the snake bites. We'll get into the actual detail of the snake and the pole in a little while, but there are several things that I want us to understand. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9, the description of what the people did is recorded as that they tempted Christ. Now, the word tempt, what the word tempt means is affected by the context and how it's being used and who's being spoken about in that context. When we experience temptation, when you and I experience temptation, what that means is that our sinful nature is being drawn towards committing a sinful act. We are tempted, we are enticed toward doing something. Nearly always talking about something, something that is sinful. We, we have sinful lusts that are resident within our human nature and they desire to be fulfilled. They desire to, for us to act upon those things. And the devil does his best to assist us. He wants to help us along in fulfilling those lusts. In James chapter 1, and I've got quite a bit of scripture today, more than happy to give those references to people later if you're not able to keep up. But James 1 and verse 12 says, Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man, somebody say, that's me. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, it brings forth death. So we, the scripture tells us that we are blessed when we endure temptation. What that means is when you go through it without yielding to the temptation. That's what that means. We don't give in to the temptation. It also tells us that we cannot blame God or say that God has tempted us. God wants to save us from sin, not to entice us to commit sin. That would be counterproductive to what God desires for humanity. The desire to sin comes from within us. It comes from our own lust. And as much as human nature would like to blame anybody and any circumstance and any situation, sinful desires are internal. Environment can contribute to the outcome of those desires, but it is our sinful flesh that has the desire in the first place. If you don't have a desire for something, it's very hard to be tempted that way. Amen. 
So the desire for sin comes from within us. If we act upon the temptation, as it tells us in James, or in other words, if we allow it to conceive or come to life, then we actually commit sin. To be tempted of itself is not a sin. It is what you do with temptation that determines whether it becomes a sin or whether you endure that temptation and are blessed by the Lord. And sin, when it is finished, so if you, if you act upon a temptation, if you allow it to come to life, you participate in sin. But then when sin is finished, or in other words, when it's left unaddressed, when it's not repented of, it's not made right with the Lord, it brings death. So this is what happens when we are tempted to sin. Now, this passage in James makes it very clear that God doesn't tempt any man. But in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1, as some of you will know, it says, And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. Remembering that what tempt really means is determined or at least affected by context. In Genesis chapter 22, God is testing Abraham. He is testing Abraham's faith. He's asking him to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Now, if you know the story, you know that that doesn't actually eventuate. And we say, thank you, Lord, for that. He doesn't ask us to offer our children as sacrifices. But James was, James was telling us that God will not tempt someone to commit sin. But here in Genesis, the word tempt is being used to describe God testing Abraham's faith or asking him to trust him. So although we read the same word, the, the, the understanding is not quite the same. And then we get to, to our story in Numbers about the serpents and how Paul describes that as the people tempting God. Now, considering the meanings we've already looked at, it cannot mean that the people were trying to cause God to sin. God can't sin. That's impossible. He's a holy God. It also cannot mean that they were testing God's faith like God was testing Abraham's faith. God doesn't need faith. We have faith in him, not the other way around. But what it means in the context of what happened in the book of Numbers is that the people, the condition of their hearts was so hard that they had questioned God. They had challenged his will in their lives repeatedly. They had rejected what he was trying to do with them and for them. And they had despised how he was providing for them and so on. And so we could say, when we say that the people tempted the Lord, that what they were really doing was testing his patience. If you're a parent, you know there are times when your patience is tested. These were the children of Israel. They were God's children, and they were testing his patience. And yes, it is definitely true that God is both gracious and he is merciful. But Scripture includes this warning for us so that we can recognize, and this is important that we understand this, so that we can recognize that there is a point that we can push God to where there are consequences. Now, I know that goes against some of our thinking, but the Scripture lets us know that there are situations where God will respond, not in a fashion that we find attractive. If you don't believe that, read the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. You see, God... There are things that God requires of us. There are things that God will be merciful and long-suffering with, but as he demonstrated with his people, with these warnings that are given for us, there can be a point where we reject. We harden our hearts, we resist, we despise what he does, where there can be consequences. 
You might say, well, that's just an Old Testament story. Well, let me bring it into a New Testament setting. Not the Wednesday just passed, but the one before. We, we had communion together. Now, a part of the instruction that is given to us for when we have communion, which is written to the same church in the very next chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, includes this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Paul wrote to them in a New Testament setting, and he said, there are people even in your midst, he said, who have approached communion with an inappropriate attitude in their hearts, they could become sick and even die. New Testament setting. So we need to take care. Don't be deceived into thinking that because God is gracious and merciful that he does not have a tipping point, that there is not a line that you can cross. Amen. I know that's a little intense, but I believe that's biblical. So what was the solution to the fiery serpents? When the Lord sent the fiery serpents among the people, what was the solution? It began with repentance. Everything when we approach God begins with repentance. Amen. We have to repent. We have to say, I have sinned. I have disobeyed God. I have gone against His word. I am wrong. I am sorry. I want to change. We baptized this couple this morning. If it's not, if there isn't repentance preceding that, we just get wet. I've spent quite some time talking to them about that because it matters that we repent. The people confessed their wrong and they asked Moses to pray. And when Moses prayed for them, God told Moses to make a serpent or a snake out of brass to put it on a pole. It doesn't tell us how long the pole was, but I imagine it needed to be visible from a reasonable distance. So it was a reasonably long pole, I would suggest. So the people could look upon that. Why in the world did God give Moses those instructions? Why did he say, hey, here's the solution. Make a snake out of brass. Stick it on a pole. Moses is like, sorry? Could you repeat that? But you see, when you understand how Scripture is all connected, the serpent was symbolic of sin and its consequences had been since the Garden of Eden. Since the serpent was involved in the temptation of Eve and the deception of Adam, it had been a symbol of sin and consequences since the very beginning. And if you've been here on Sunday night with our lessons on the tabernacle, we learn from those lessons that brass is symbolic of judgment. The altar where they offered their sacrifices for their sins was made out of brass. And so we have two elements. One is a token of sin, and its consequences, the other one is a token of judgment. And so Moses is lifting up this snake made out of brass, and you have to jump to really put the pieces together. You have to jump to the New Testament, to John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where Jesus speaking said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. On the cross of Calvary, in the death of Jesus, the sin of mankind met the judgment of God. And redemption was made possible for us. The sin and the consequences came together, as it were, represented by that snake made out of brass, and Jesus paid the price 
for our sins and our debt was paid. And we, we need to be thankful for that this morning. We need to recognize that when Jesus died for us, sometimes we have a misunderstanding that somehow that the, the consequences of sin were overlooked or swept under a rug or just put away in the cupboard somewhere, but he took every last punishment for every last sin when he hung upon Calvary. Sin and judgment met together and they found grace and mercy for you and I. But what is, as is so often the way with Israel, God does something and they have a way of taking it and messing it up. Because you can read, I'm not going to read it now, but you can read it later in Second Kings. The Israelites actually seem to have managed to keep that brass serpent. They kept that snake made out of brass and it actually became an idol unto them. It was never meant to be worshipped. They twisted its purpose. It was never meant to be something they worshipped. It served, God used it as a way to deliver his people, but also to be symbolic. And what is interesting is, in a similar fashion, in much of Orthodox Christianity, we see similar practices regarding the cross. Statues of Jesus on the cross are common in Orthodox churches. They are treated as holy things. But Jesus is not on the cross anymore. He died and he was taken down from the cross and he rose again on the morning of the third day. Even the cross itself can be misused symbolically. You know, we have a cross on the outside of our church building. Why do we have that there? Because it's an easily recognizable symbol that we are a church. But the cross was just a wooden object that was used, actually very commonly used by the Romans, as a means of punishment and execution. What makes the cross significant to us is the one who died on the cross for us. That's where our focus needs to be. Not on two pieces of timber, but on the Lamb of God that was sacrificed for our sins on that cross. Amen. Some of the old hymns and even worship songs do mention the cross. I love the old hymn, The Old Rugged Cross. But the song is still about the one that hung on that cross. It talks about the sacrifice that was made for us. The cross is only significant when it's connected to Jesus. Otherwise, it's just a wooden object. And so having a cross anywhere is of no spiritual value. I'll go as far as to say as Christians, we shouldn't wear crosses around our necks. We shouldn't have them hanging off our rear vision mirrors. Those things don't make us Christians. What makes us Christians is that we carry the name of Jesus, that we demonstrate his love, we bear the fruit of his spirit. That's what makes us Christians. It's not a symbol. It's not a symbol. Amen. And so we need that, that warning in, in 1 Corinthians 10 and 9 is that we ought not to tempt the Lord as they did. In other words, we need to be careful. We don't reject God. We don't dispute what he's done for us. We don't lose our gratitude for his provision for us and all the things that he's put in place for us. Amen. The final example. And the final warning that Paul gives us in our text in chapter 10 is found in verse 10. 1 Corinthians 10 and 10. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. The word murmur is an interesting word. It includes in its meanings such things as complaining, moaning, and grumbling. I never found somebody that doesn't have those abilities, me included. I'm a good complainer. Ask my wife. All of us have those abilities. But, but in the scriptural setting, like we're talking about here in this warning, it's not simply speaking about having a difference of opinion. 
or not liking an action or a decision that's made. You know, if we decide to paint the church a different color, not everybody's going to like that color. That's just how it is. But that, that's not murmuring. If we decide to change the service time, we go to 9.30 instead of 10 o'clock and felt the shudder go through the church. Everybody thought they might have to get up a little bit earlier on a Sunday morning. Not everybody would like that decision, but again, it's, it's not murmuring. You know, if you think I preached too long, that's okay. I'm not sure how to interpret that, Sister Adriana. (coughs) Having our own opinions and our own views is all right. That's okay. That's not murmuring. You do find that people that make a practice of finding fault and complaining can be very discouraging, but I don't believe that's murmuring as the Scripture is telling us here. That's not what the warning is about. Murmuring, as I understand it from studying it with this verse and in the Old Testament, seems to be that when the complaining and the criticizing has a negative impact upon the church, upon the people of God, on their relationship with God and with the leadership that God has given them. I think that's what this verse is talking about. The book of Proverbs probably describes it as sowing discord or behaving in a manner that brings division or at least plants the seeds of division. Sadly, the description of the people of Israel murmuring is not just connected to one example, but it's connected to many. Some of the warnings we've considered in 1 Corinthians 10, we can say, well, that's exactly this and that's exactly that. But when you search the word murmur or murmured in the Old Testament, you will see that there are quite a number of examples where the people murmured against God and against Moses. And God was very displeased with their murmuring because it constantly represented a, rep- a rejection rather, of his provision, which he had made for them, when he miraculously, he kept them a, lo- a multitude, millions of people in the wilderness. He kept them alive miraculously every day. And they rejected that and they complained about that. They repeatedly complained about the conditions they experienced. Repeatedly. God would do a miracle and three days later they get thirsty and say, you brought us out here to die. Again and again. They complained about the giants in the promised land that God had brought them to. We've already mentioned it, but they complained about the miraculous manner that God had provided for them. They complained about Moses, the leader that God spent 80 years preparing for them. Think about that. God took 80 years getting Moses ready for that job. Their complaining crippled faith. It brought division and it promoted carnality and lust. And I want to use two examples. There's a whole bunch we could use, but two particular that are well known to underline about how God feels about this kind of memory. Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. It says, And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, And the whole congregation said unto them something different. Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt or would God that we had died in this wilderness? This chapter begins immediately after the 12 spies have returned from examining the promised land and the negative reports and the fear that was spreading among the people. Two of those 12 men, Joshua and Caleb, stood up and tried to urge the people to trust God 
It was going to be okay. God had promised this land. They, we can take it. If it's from God, it'll be okay. We'll have the victory. But that murmuring and that complaining was so strong that when Joshua and Caleb tried to keep them on track, the people actually threatened to stone them, to execute them. And you read again of God reaching that point. If you read on after verse 2, you'll find that God wanted to wipe them all out and start again. He said to Moses, Moses, step back. I'm going to wipe all these ungrateful people out. I'm going to start again from you. And Moses interceded for the people of God. Moses prayed and asked the Lord not to do that. And the Lord withdrew some of those consequences, but you know that there were, there were consequences that led to them, those that were of a certain age and above would die in the wilderness. But you read on again in the same chapter, in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 36, it says, and the men which Moses sent to search the land. So this is the other ten spies who returned and made all the congregation to murmur against him by bringing up slander upon the land. Even those men that did bring up the evil report upon the land died by the plague before the Lord. So they didn't die in the wilderness. God killed the ten of them then and there. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of the men that were sent to search the land, lived still so the 10 spies that brought back the negative report that turned the people that murmured and turned the people against moses god killed them that's how god feels about us murmuring numbers chapter 16 a very well known and a really a, a terrible story numbers chapter 16 and starting at verse 1 it says now korah the son of Izhar, the son of kohath the son of levi and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. They gathered together people. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown, influencers, they would call them today. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, you take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. I'd encourage you to read this whole chapter later in your own time, but we'll pick out a couple of bits for the sake of our lesson. This chapter is a terrible, terrible account of what division and murmuring can cause. These young leaders led by Korah, basically decided that Moses and Aaron considered themselves to be special and that these young leaders and others could do just as good a job. If you read on, you'll see that Moses appealed to them not to go down this path. He said, don't go this direction. He reminded them of their privileged position. You see, they, they were Levites. They were in the priesthood. They were involved in ministry and worshiping in the house of the Lord. And, and Moses tried to say, don't make light of the privilege you have. He's saying, you're involved in the worship of God. You're involved in ministering in the tabernacle. He said, don't treat that lightly. It's important. You serve in the house of God, but they would not listen. And then again, we read of God's anger, wanting to wipe them all out. But in Moses 6, sorry, in Numbers, there's no book of Moses, don't look for it. In Numbers 16 and verses 20 and 21, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. But again, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces and asked God not to destroy all the people because of the sins of one man. And so the Lord told Moses to warn the people to separate themselves from, 
from Korah and all those that were with him. In Numbers 16 and 26, it says, And he spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. So they got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abraham on every side. And Dathan and Abraham came out and stood in the door of their tents and their wives and their sons and their little children. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord hath sent me to do all these works. For, if I, for I have not done them of my own mind. Moses was saying, I didn't ask for this job. This wasn't my idea. Moses was minding his own business on the backside of the desert looking after his father-in-law's sheep when the Lord miraculously appeared to him and sent him back to deliver his people from Israel. So Moses said, you're going to know that this wasn't my idea. In verse 29, he said, if these men die the common death of all men, they just die from old age or whatever, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up with all that appertain, all that belongs unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then you shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. And it came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder, which is King James English, for the ground opened up that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, and their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods. They and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit and the earth closed upon them and they perished from among the congregation. Now, this was a terrible, terrible tragedy that didn't have to happen. These young men refused to listen to the warnings they were given. They were given opportunity to, to check their spirits, to withdraw their actions but they refused and they paid the ultimate price. And as terrible as the destruction of Korah and those with him was in the first instance, the real devastation was in what followed. We get down to verse 41 of the same chapter, of Numbers chapter 16, and it says, But on the morrow, the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured, against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. They witnessed the judgment of God. They knew that Moses couldn't open the ground. It was God that did it. But they, they murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And in verse 42 it says, And it came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation Behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation. They went into the tabernacle, and the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. You see a pattern here? God's saying, I'm going to fix these people. But again, we see, it says, And they fell on their faces, as Moses and Aaron again, praying for the people of God. And verse 46 says, And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer. Now a censer, if you're not familiar with that, is a, a, a container of some sort where they would carry coals and incense together when they ministered within the tabernacle. He said, Take a censer and put fire therein from off the altar, put incense on it, and go quickly unto the congregation. Make an atonement for them, for there is wrath gone out from the Lord. The plague is begun. God had sent a plague amongst the people. And Aaron took as Moses commanded, ran into the midst of the congregation, and behold, the plague was begun among the people, 
And he put on incense on the hot coals in the censer and he made an atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stayed or it was stopped. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700 beside them or not including those that died about the matter of Korah. And Aaron returned unto Moses unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and the plague was stayed or it stopped. So after watching the ground open up and swallow up Korah and those with him, the very next day the people murmured. They didn't just have a bad attitude. They, they came against Moses and Aaron and blamed them for what had happened. And again, they angered God. And again, he was going to destroy them. And again, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. And Moses told Aaron to take the censer, that vessel to carry the hot coals off the altar and the incense and to put incense and coals in that censer. Quite possibly the same censer that Aaron took behind the veil on the Day of Atonement when he offered the sacrifice for the nation of Israel. And he was to go among the people and Aaron ran. And from what we can read, it seems as though the plague that God sent sort of started on one side and just was moving its way across the nation of Israel. Because it says that Aaron stood between the living and the dead. He, he found that line, as you were, and he stood against that plague and the plague was stopped. Twice in this chapter, Moses and Aaron stood in the gap for the very people that murmured against them. What does all this mean for us in the New Testament? Philippians chapter 2, and we're nearly done. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14 and 15 says, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless. Blameless in the sight of God, harmless amongst our brethren. The sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So this morning, as we bring this series to a close, Sister Stinker, if I could ask you to come to the piano, please. We live in a crooked and perverse generation. If you look around, we live in that generation. We are the ones that Paul described in 1 Corinthians 10 as those upon whom the ends of the world have come. We ought to take these scriptures and these lessons as an admonition and a warning. Because they're not just Old Testament stories about some strange Middle Eastern people that wandered in a desert somewhere that worshipped idols and did some crazy things. They are written for our admonition. They're written to warn us today. As hard as that is for us to reconcile in the natural, because we are in 2020, God has used those things and caused Paul to write, and he said, we, you must be careful... He said that if you think you stand, if you think you stand, and if you think these things cannot happen to you, be careful that we do not fall. Amen. I want us to stand together this morning, if you would. I appreciate your patience. So our text from 1 Corinthians that we began with in chapter 10 has our two bookends we spoke about. Both of them tell us that these things are written for our example and that we need to take heed. I want to give us an opportunity this morning as Sister Stenka leads us in a, a chorus. I want us to 
to take a moment to search our hearts and say, Lord, these warnings are written to me. They're not written to the person beside me, the person in the row of seats in front of me. Or they're, they're written to the pastor. They're definitely written to the pastor. They're written for all of us. And take a moment just to say, Lord, search my heart. Help me not to be deceived to just think, yeah, I'm all right. I can stand. None of these things have any chance in my life. I say, God, search my heart. Let me consider these examples. Let me, let me not take it lightly, the anger that you had towards your people when they sinned. We thank God for his grace and for his mercy this morning. But we also know that he is a God that is holy and just and righteous and the judge of all mankind. And we are so blessed and so privileged to live in a, a time and a moment where we're able to take advantage of the cross, where our sin met the judgment of God at Calvary, and he paid the price for us. And so as we worship him, if you want to find a place at this altar, I want us to pray together for a few minutes this morning as we prepare for a baptism that we would not just think, well, that was an interesting Bible lesson, but that we would take these things to heart this morning. So let's just let's lift our hands together.